You've downloaded NewsHour Extra. We've got a special edition of the programme this week because we're in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, Robin Banerjee, tell us why we've come here. Well, we've come here because this is the centre, in some senses, of the Somali community outside Somalia. There are at least 100,000, people think, Somalis in America, and the vast majority of them are here. And, Piers, there's a reason that they are particularly controversial? So, yeah, there's been some well-documented cases of uh, Somali-Americans really quite recently, so since 2007, being caught up going abroad to support jihadi groups, you know, one being al-Shabaab, the you know, obviously the indigenous Somali uh, group, and then uh, the so-called Islamic State, um, not that long ago, about 15 months ago that happened. Yeah, and it's, a, it's a just an interesting thing, because the Americans are normally so good at integrating communities, and they've been doing it for centuries, and it normally works, that you know, new groups arrive here, and in this city, there are a lot of Hmong from Laos and Vietnam, who everybody says have integrated incredibly well. Yes, that's true, but I think, on the other hand, the Somalis have come fairly recently, I mean, the Hmong came in the 70s and 80s. Somalis have come within the last 10 to 15 years. Also, they've come out of very difficult circumstances in Somalia. They've come out of camps in Kenya. I was struck how many of the people we spoke to when we visited St. Cloud, a local um, town here in Minnesota, when we asked them where they were from, they said, oh, I'm from Djibouti, I'm from Ethiopia, I'm from Kenya. They didn't say I'm from America yet. They're not used to being in America yet, one feels. Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, we spent time with uh, Somali-American police officers and obviously, you know, London and in particular the part of London where I'm from has a large uh, Somali community and um, I've never seen a Somali-British police officer. So I think a lot of these people didn't actually get to go where they were going. They were picked up by the authorities before they went. I, in terms of the people who wanted to go? In terms of the people that wanted to go, and I think, you know, right. there's a very real concerted effort to engage and work with the community on, on behalf of the authorities. So I've actually been quite impressed uh, with some of the levels of engagement and some of the things I've been hearing at the same time as obviously hearing the concerns and and the worries that you usually hear when we look at these type of stories. No, sure. There are lots of interesting questions here. Why do some young people here want to fight? But also, how is the state dealing with it? And how is that different from uh, what happens with Somali communities elsewhere in the world? And so what are the similarities? What are the differences? There are lots of issues here. And, and one of the reasons that this place is so high profile is because Donald Trump was here just two days before the election. Before we hear from him, just to say... We're in Augsburg College. It's a liberal arts college founded in 1869 for Norwegian-Americans. Now, 4,000 students from all over America and all over the world and quite a few Somali-Americans, and they are included in our audience and, as you'll hear, on our panel as well. We're doing this in collaboration with Minnesota Public Radio. But let's hear, just to get us underway, Donald Trump, two days before the election, talking about the refugees who've come to this state of Minnesota. Here in Minnesota, you've seen firsthand the problems caused with faulty refugee vetting, with large numbers of Somali refugees coming into your state without your knowledge, without your support or approval, and with some of them then joining ISIS and spreading their extremist views all over our country and all over the world. Honestly, it's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. And everybody's reading about the disaster taking place in Minnesota. Everybody's reading about it. You don't even have the right to talk about it. You don't even know who's coming in. You have no idea. You'll find out. You'll find out. Uh, President Trump speaking in this state just uh, before the elections. And there are problems here. In the local paper this morning, 
I saw a story about a man, Kelvin Porter, who bit and stabbed a Somali-American and told the police, I hate Muslims. In September, a young Somali-American, Dahir Adan, stabbed 10 people in a shopping mall, asking them, are you Muslim, before he was shot dead. So there are lots of questions to ask here about why this is happening. And we've got a panel drawn today from the Somali-American community. We have Professor Awa Abdi from the University of Minnesota, Jailani Hussein, Executive Director of the Minnesota Chapter of CARE, that's the Council on American-Islamic Relations. We have Haji Youssef, who's an advertising executive and activist from St. Cloud in Minnesota, and Abdi Mohammed, who works in Hennepin County Sheriff's Department. And we're in Hennepin County now. Uh, and so you are with the, uh, the, the Sheriff's Office and responsible, in fact, for outreach to the Somali community. So my first question is just some reaction to Mr. Trump's comments here in Minnesota. Our Abdi, why don't you start us off? What did you think when you heard the president say that? I was not so surprised because that was not the first offensive comment that he has made against, <laughs> against um, various communities uh, that was preceded by his claims that Mexican immigrants are thieves and rapists and drug pushers, I guess. So I was, of course, I was not surprised, but I was, of course, offended and saddened that he can come to a state that he probably does not know much about, uh, where Somali settlement is, of course, um, both very positive, but also that does not mean that there are not some challenges that all refugee communities, newcomers experience in their first couple of decades of settlement. And in the post-9-11 context, so a Muslim, Somali, African refugee community coming to the Midwest, the whitest of the white in terms of American landscape and geography and population. So, you know, this is not to say that there are no challenges, but for him to come here and kind of, you know, brush the whole community in such simplistic kind of terms, it was problematic. Let's go to Abdi Mohammed from the Sheriff's Department. The fact is there are issues here. There have been groups who've tried to join, well, did join, Al-Shabaab in Somalia. There have been some young men and women who wanted to join Islamic State and were trying to get there, and there has been a violent incident here with a, a, a stabbing I mentioned. So th there are things happening here. Why do you think it's happening? Uh, Somalis are not different other American immigrants who come here at different time and come here at different reasons. And I think the population of Somali communities is over 125,000. And those kids who are involved with this kind of activity is less than probably 100 people. So to us as a law enforcement, we see case by case. And I think majority cases are identity crisis and people recruit through the internet. That's how I see it. Identity crisis yeah. recruited through the internet. I mean, I'll say at the beginning, no one is saying this is, in this program anyway, that this is the whole community. But nonetheless, it is a very significant thing that's happened here and it has to be confronted and discussed and dealt with. So, so let, let me ask you, Jailani Hussain, I mean, what's your analysis of why this is happening in the Somali-American community? Well, first of all, just to answer the first question, uh, Donald Trump uh, used <clears throat> talking points that have been well-established in the Islamophobic network in this country. And many of the people who are now in his administration has be have been identified by the Southern Poverty Law Center and many other organizations to have anti-Muslim views. Uh, and many of the talking points that he used to attack Muslims and Somalis in particular, came from those dark corners. 
And one of those principles, actually the, the main goal of, of uh, the Islamophobic network is to frame American Muslims as a threat to America. And so here in Minnesota, we've had incidents of young men joining terrorist organizations. But what has been underreported is the overwhelming response from this community that today we say that we have actually no recruits to al-Shabaab. And that was a testament that this community can address these specific issues, as small as they are compared to the other relative issues that many immigrant communities like the Somali community deal with. Haji Yusuf, what's your analysis as to why, you know, if there's 50, 60, 70, and of course it's an unknown number, actually, because there may have been people who went and nobody knows about, but, uh, you know, those sort of numbers, why they... were here in America with so many opportunities and decided not to take them and to go and fight for violent jihad? First of all, we have to admit there's a problem. In every community, there are problems. You have young boys, white, that walk into school and shoot up a school. So in every community, we have issues. When you have a young man that has seen a war in his home country, trauma, and he comes to a refugee camp, and when he arrives... He's still mistreated by the local Kenyan army or Kenyan police. And then he gets to fly to come to the West, be UK or the US. And he goes to the school system and he gets called out names. He gets bullied. The kid is building some resentment and some hate. So what happens is you see some guy sitting somewhere on social media, tells him, hey, you know the West or America doesn't love you. Why don't you come over and fight, you know? And, and I can say that, too, to connect it, that what happens here locally, even in the United States, is you have young boys, white or girls that get bullied, and they take these actions. And you see them walk into a school and shoot up a place. And you see a young man in South Carolina walks into a church, kills nine people who are reading the Bible, right? And, 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 and when you look at that background and where that kid came from, you see that he has also been influenced. Do any of you see any causal factors within Islam in this, in, oh, yeah. in, the, in the clerics, either online or locally. And the officials here say, say some of this recruitment is local. So tell us about that element of it, which we hear a lot about from conservatives in America who are very concerned about Islam. I, I don't think the question is about the religion. It has always been pointed that there is something inherently within Islam that projects people to violence. That is the same narrative that is today being used in Islamophobia. There's nothing wrong with Islam. And today, many young people don't know Islam. And that is the actual uh, reason why many of them get confused. As an African-American, as a Somali, as an immigrant to this country, those three factors are, make me, as an American, more likely to be a suspect of a crime that I have not committed, let alone the suspicion of a, of a grandiose uh, conspiracy of a crime. The number of young kids who have been influence or, or, or got caught up in this compared to the actual other incidents that have happened. I've spent eight years working in juvenile treatment centers in the state of Minnesota and in North Dakota. The factors that lead young people into these crimes are poverty. The factors that lead young people into these crimes are negligence and the fact that the system is broke and that we have accepted criminalization and prison as a way to address some of the issues that typically happen in... in, in okay, so communities. between you, you're telling me there's poverty, there's discrimination, there's an identity crisis, and I'm going to press you on this, our Abdi, and just say, you know, th- there are some clerics who would disagree with what Jilani has just said, 
and would say that they can find sources to justify violent jihad in their religious texts. So it's not quite as clear as is being stated, isn't it? There is, there is more to this than discrimination, poverty, and these other factors that are there. You know, religion is a text, and different people read that text differently. I can read a book and give you my narrative, my interpretation, and another person will give you something that's completely opposite. So the question is not that are there different readings of some Islamic verses in terms of whether they promote violence or not. I think it's simplistic to say that, you know, what is explaining this? So far, we haven't well, found... I, I don't think it is. I don't think yeah. I'm being simplistic, actually. I'm saying there are many factors, many of which yes, you mentioned. Yes, absolutely. But, yeah. And possibly uh, religion is, is part of the story. I think the main the one... Is, yeah, yeah. If, if I could just interrupt. I think the main one, which we tend to side topic or, or kind of not address it, is politics. It is always grievances. The reason why recruiting happens in third worlds today is not because somebody's saying you could be a better Muslim. It's saying, join me so I can solve a problem. That, there, 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 that is the real But there reason. are people saying you can be a better Muslim if you do this. There are people who say that. And those fall onto people who don't understand Islam. Let's throw this open to the audience. And we've got Augsburg College has produced a large audience here in this <laughs> hall. So let's uh, see, there's a gentleman there. And if you don't mind, it probably helps the speakers if you say your name and if you've got any organization you're affiliated with. So over to you. My name is Muhammad Kali. I'm executive director for Somali American Radio and uh, we partner NBR, and also uh, we happy to see BBC is coming here. So I just want to share with you, we have that discussion, Somali American Radio, and the community participate why we have those issues. And I'm 100% sure when you immigrate new country, new environment, and the kids, they grow up this country, different culture, and we're coming from our own culture, those cultures, they crash, and that's what we see sometimes. Parents don't understand, and the school system don't understand what the young kids grow up, those two different cultures. I think that's what the main problem is, kids go, growing up different area. A culture clash. Any more comments from the audience? Yes, there's a lady there. Lisa Belke, retired ESL teacher. 40 years in Minnesota. I first saw a limited number of Somali come to Minnesota back in 99. I spent the last 12 years teaching high school students. The very, very few young Somali men I taught that I wondered whether they would be recruited were young men who were very sensitive to other people's opinion and sometimes didn't see help that was being presented to them. So I think that when you have grievances, when you have been bullied and someone, as they used to say with the cults, love bombs, you no one understands you, we're the one who really appreciate you, that all of us need to be paying attention to what's happening with the kids around us because I've seen so many young Somali men and women over the last 15 years become awesome citizens. Thank you very much. Uh, there's a comment there right in the middle, which will be difficult for the microphone to get to, but there you go. Uh, yes, well done. You're reaching out. Uh, thank you very much, and thank you for coming to Minnesota. Uh, I just want to follow up uh, what's causing uh, the young children, the young Somali and the youth why they get radicalized, and beside the grievances and the identity crisis that they are feeling in Minneapolis or in America in general, also I want to connect this to the international political phenomena, what's happening in Libya, what's happening in Egypt, what's happening in Tunisia, uh, 
what's happening in Somalia or Iraq also is creates more grievances and many people they believe that the West is against Islam and is there to destroy Islam because there are more countries that's been uh, destroyed or America or other West countries invaded without building another government that's replacing the first one. Let, let me so ask, this thing yeah. is... Yeah. So you're saying foreign policy is a problem? Foreign can I, policy can, can I just is ask, another problem, yes. Can I ask you this? You, are you from Somalia originally? Yes, I'm from Somalia. Right, and how long have you been here? Uh, for three years. Three years. And in that time, have you experienced American hatred of Muslims? I mean, are you saying that this foreign policy, you feel it in your personal life here, or have you, in fact, been welcomed and given opportunities here? I'm seeing this uh, from my experience. Uh, I am a political scientist, so I was at Western Illinois University, so many of the discussions that were taking place, so the foreign policy of the United States is part of the problem also, beside the, what they are feeling here in the United We're familiar States. with that point, but I'm just trying to ask you, in your life here in Minnesota, I'm sure many in the audience wouldn't think they're very hostile to Muslims, so I'm asking you whether you, you, you acknowledge that. I haven't seen anything no problems specific here. to myself, yes. Yeah. Any more questions from the audience? Yeah, there's one in the front, then we'll go back to the panel. Good afternoon. Thank you for the opportunity. And I do truly appreciate the, the panel uh, and the host in Augsburg and everybody else. Um, my name is Mustafa. I'm an educational professional. And I think trying to make it simplistic actually is a problem. We cannot deny that there are ideologies. Uh, so we need to recognize that. We need to, inside the house, talk about that as a problem. We need to talk about the social aspect of it, poverty, education, and all of those. So they're all interlinked. No, I think everyone's agreeing it's highly complicated, and there are, there are lots of things going on at the same time. I just want to follow up with the young man who, you know, you asked him if he personally experienced. Mm. Uh, so Minnesota is a very welcoming um, community, no question about it. I've been doing research with the Somali community here since 2004. But the commu- you don't have to experience hostility personally. More recently, you know, a few years back, um, Norman Coleman, the former senator of Minnesota, you know, t- talking to the governor use the word the land of 10,000 terrorists to reference the Somali community presence in Minnesota. And he was using the same lingo that uh, Trump was using to say this is a dangerous community. And sometimes you have these incidents which are unfortunate, which the Somali community and the larger community, the Somali community does not live in a vacuum. It's very much part and parcel of Minnesota now. Their fate is very much linked with Minnesota and the United States. So when you have these types of hostilities being picked up by the media and repeated ad nauseum you know, by Fox, the community often ends up being portrayed as one that is you know, there to slaughter you when you turn your back. So a lot of people who have no fear, who have had no experience with Islam, oftentimes can be co-opted to discriminate and sometimes to commit violence or where you deny someone a job opportunity, for example. So, you know, the consequences of Islamophobia, I guess, and the narrative against Islam and Muslims can have various consequences that are both subtle, but also can be obvious, you know, in terms of how they impact people. Jaleli, I'll come to you in a moment. You're indicating, but just first of all to Haji, can you just reflect on the fact that this is, I mean, another thing that's different about the Somali-American community is it's quite recent, which presumably makes a difference. Tell us about that. From my experience, so I went to a small town 
just about 20 minutes drive from St. Cloud. It's called Foley. I went to talk to a church, a Lutheran church. And after I finished talking to them and telling them about the presence of the Somalis and other groups around central Minnesota, I got the question was asked of me was, are there going to be more Somalis moving to uh, Foley? And I said, no, uh, St. Cloud is the farthest that they have come. So they're not going to come to Foley because <laughs> there's, there's nothing in Foley. <laughs> I mean, just farms, no jobs, nothing. So, but you enjoy it. I just, yeah, I just reassured them that the Somali-Americans are the fathers they can come in St. Cloud. But uh, some of these neighbors in central Minnesota or parts of northern Minnesota have never had Muslim as a neighbor. When you have people from Sweden and Norway and Germany and France and Catholics and Lutherans and you have all these faiths that have lived here for close to, what, 250 years. You had the recent arrival of the Jews and the Italians and even recently in 1960 we wouldn't want to elect a Catholic as a president because we thought the Pope is going to come here and take over. There was that fear uh, for John F. Kennedy before he was elected. Uh, so it's not unique. But when you have a community that is new and the, the people that have lived there, the only idea about that new community is what they see on CNN, what they see is on Fox, what they see is on, you know, on many channels. He held, they... he held back from saying BBC. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get kicked out. But uh, uh, when you see that and those people see, what they see is they see Iraq, the beheadings. What they see is uh, Egypt. What they see is Somalia, 1991. We invaded, U.S. went to Somalia, you know, whatever reason. This is their introduction to Muslims or Somalis to America, right? And so there's suspicion, right? But also as a community ourselves, we can also take the blame. Because why I say so is because it shouldn't be just one way. I think it should be two ways. Whereby before we even move to a place, we, we must know the history. We must know the people. Because those people that live here, they have a value. They have a culture. They have a faith. And we must respect that. For them also to respect us. Because the idea they have about Muslims or Somalis is what they've seen on TV. Okay. Jelani, you had a point. The, the fact of the matter that we're even talking about this subject is a clear indication that we are not moving forward. What we're talking about, 100 kids, the act of 100 kids, and the fact that their community has to take the blame for it. I mean, this is clearly what we have been pushing back against for a long time, the stigmatization of this community. This is a hardworking community that has made... Minnesota home, made this country home. They provide the economy of this country. There is now the numbers are 40% of this community, the Somali community now are born here. If you go to places where uh, small downtowns in the great state of Minnesota, they're completely retaken over, revitalized by this community. In addition to that, corridors in Minneapolis that were, uh, I lived on Lake Street uh, when I came here in 1993, and that place was a place nobody wanted to be. Today, it's a, a bustling place because of the Latino community who nobody wants and the Somali community who, so I think we have to be honest that I hope that today's conversation would spend bulk of it talking about the, the wider range of things that we produce, including Olympians like Hassan Mead, who graduated from the University of Minnesota and runs for the Olympic team, the number of Somali kids who have joined the United States Army, who we forget to even record, three of my closest friends, but yet we talk about this incident of these kids and their story because it's become a natural Big phenomenon. And it's unfortunate, but this is why we're pushing back against Islamophobia. Okay. And, and let me finish with this fact. Yeah. The reality today 
of terrorism or, or, or terrorism in the United States is that you're more likely to be struck by lightning twice than to be killed by a terrorist attack. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to pick this up in the second half, and Abdi, we'll come to you in the second half. I, I think this is a perfectly legitimate uh, topic, and uh, I, I will uh, try and defend that, if you like, <laughs> if, you, if you think I need to. Every uh, single reporter who came to Minnesota, who came to my office, this is the only question they asked. No, and, and, and I told and, them we have a lot of things to talk and, about. And not only in Minnesota, of course. But I think, uh, Jelani, it's a, it's yeah. a valid um, no, it's not. A, it's it's a it's, valid it's, it's a valid discussion, discussion because of the fact we want to demonize this community. We want to look at them as a threat, and we forget that they came here because there was a civil war in Somalia. Right. I, I mean, mean I, we have real issues to right, address. Right. If we talk about, let's talk about terrorism. Let's talk about Al Shabaab. Mm-hmm. Al Shabaab is indirectly a result of bad foreign policy by our government. The entire Somali community came together and said, do not support Tobit invasion. This country did and created Al-Shabaab. And now we have to deal with it. We have to ha- own up to these issues <laughs> and recognize that we also have dealings with it. And by the way, a lot of Minnesotans only hear about this. Why? Because journalists only want to write about a subject that has a national, international competition. I, I, okay. I, I totally agree, but I want to say one thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I live in a small town, St. Cloud, which is about an hour from here. The, the population in St. Cloud thinks differently than what happens here in Minneapolis. And, and I agree, you know, uh, what Jelani have said. But I also see the other way where I see it is, is there's a lot of tension, there's a lot of misunderstanding. So we must have this conversation to assure people that it's not the case. Otherwise, how are we going to have this conversation if it's not being discussed? You're listening to NewsHour Extra in Minneapolis this week. And a reminder... Of our panel today, our Abdi of the University of Minnesota, Jelani Hussein from the Council on American-Islamic Relations, Haji Youssef, activist and advertising executive, and Abdi Muhammad, who works in the Sheriff's Department. And I, I want to get on to what your sheriff has been up to in the White House later on. But just now, let's just pick up with what we heard towards the end of the first half of the program, with complaints that this topic is demonizing, stigmatizing uh, a community, and it's not a legitimate topic. And also, you made the remark that uh, Al-Shabaab was entirely an American creation, which I think a lot of people would... Not entirely. Well, quite. I mean, I think a lot of people would have quite a lot of trouble with that. Uh, So you were very keen to say something, Awa. Um, I think it's an important topic, and I don't think Jaylani was saying it's not an important topic, but once it becomes the only thing that defines this community, the only thing that matters to this community, then it becomes problematic. Okay, we do not hear about those young nurses and home care aides professors, medical doctors. Uh, so the, the idea is that we need to cover this topic. And well, by the oh, way, oh, you wouldn't hear about young Korean nurses or young Hmong nurses. It's quite normal to have people working in health services in a helpful way. Not necessarily way. when it's refugee community that just got here. Many of these people have spent two decades in refugee camps, have experienced very traumatic experiences, have lost their families. So those success stories are not your everyday stories. They're not coming from country where there was a strong educational system. Haji. I think what Howard is trying to say, I think, is somebody like Ilhan Omar. She's a woman. She's a Muslim. She's been elected to a state office. That's something to celebrate, right? Mm-hmm. We have people that are playing an important role in our community that are positive, that are, that are pushing conversation about some of this conversation, right, in many places. Uh, leaders in our community that are pushing this conversation. Abdi, you and, want to say something? Yeah. Part of my job is intervention, prevention, and education. And I think education is the key to open up both sides. And what we do is we hosted uh, 
event is called Women for Peace last month, and we invite only 50 females with their kid, and 120, 120 show up. I, I think it's things it's not perfect, but we're going the right way, and, and the government always trying, especially the sheriff, is trying our best to educate people, to reach them out, to hire them. When I started my office, it was only me. Now we are nine who speak East African language. So it's good to have here different radio and different <laughs> party and different opinion. That's what America all about. And our main goal is, is public safety and, and protect civil rights and civil liberties so we can have this kind of meeting today and express our opinion. Okay, I, I heard some applause for Jelani when he was complaining about this idea that this should be the topic of discussion. So let's just put that through to the audience and see what people want to say about it. There's a gentleman at the yeah. back. Hi, um, thank you for the good discussions. Uh, my name is Abdul Abdullahi. And uh, the reluctance to, like, you know, only this topic being the topic that the media covers all the time, I really agree with that 100% because media is the place that a lot of people consume their information so that's a very valid point. Like, we should also be celebrating the success stories that our mentioned, the nurses, the professionals, the engineers, the lawyers, the educators, and all that. So okay. and the media should take part in that, you know, so... Thank you. Yep, yeah. there's another comment there. Yes. Uh, my name's Josh. The topic is blown out of proportion. It's not that there isn't anything there. It's just that there's a micro magnifying glass being held over it. It's a small... Uh, aspect of what's happening here. So it's blown out of proportion. Why is it being blown out of proportion? Why is it being covered to the exclusion of everything else? Ratings? It's sensational. So I think, uh, you know, it's all due respect. You know, it's a media that's driven by ratings and sensationalism. Okay, well, let, let, let me just ask you, why, why don't you stay standing up, sir, and let me just ask you, do you think that the support for Donald Trump, who just won an election here, had anything to do with these issues. I mean, it seems to me you're dismissing it as a media scare, whereas, in fact, there is a substantial body of opinion in this country who feels very strongly on these matters. So that would, would it not make it uh, a legitimate topic? Well, I think the coverage hasn't been very... It's been one-dimensional, as far as I'm aware. And uh, I don't think Trump's election has changed things fundamentally, no. Okay, let, let me put that. The, the panel all want to come in on that. So, so, so I'll, I'll do you all in, um, in, in the order that you're sitting next to me, not in anything else. Our. Well, if you look at the data collected by ACLU or any of the other organizations you know, uh, that collect violence in the U.S., over 90% of violence is committed by right-wing American, oftentimes white people. We don't have that type of scrutiny. We don't cover that in our uh, news coverage, well, okay, let we me, are let, focusing let me just, on let me just less come, than 5% you, 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 that are committed by Muslims. Okay, you're saying 90%. Over 90%. Okay. I'll just, I think I'll just, the number I, I, I thought, have might be 94%. I, think, I thought that might come up. Yeah. Uh, New America Foundation, since 2002, right-wing militants in the US mounted 18 attacks with 48 deaths, violent jihadis, 9 attacks with 45 deaths, which suggests it's very even. And may I also point out that yeah, there is an awful lot of coverage given to uh, right-wing violence too. So your figures seem to be yeah. hopelessly out. I'm not sure. I think the Orlando kind of, because of the number of people that died in the incident, so not necessarily the number of people. And even in Orlando, you know, I, I, in terms of what the rationales, the person who committed you know, the violence, what I know from the old data at least, so I, maybe that has changed, is that over 94% of the violence, and maybe Jelani might have more updated data, well, is committed by right-wing... Yeah, they're about uh, to be definitional issues. But anyway, Jelani, yeah. 96%. I, I would say the reality is 
in America, we are starting to redefine the American Muslim story. And partly because of the growth of the Islamophobic network that has now become internationally linked. And so the Islamophobes in Europe have a place here in the United States. Both liberal viewpoints, conservative and liberal, are attacking this community. And we're changing this narrative about the American experience for Muslims, which dates back to Thomas Jefferson, who was thought of being a Muslim in this country. It dates back to a quarter or 10 to 15 percent of African-Americans who lived in this United States, who came through the slave trade, who are Muslim. It goes back to the Victorian Muslims or the 1800s here in Minnesota, in Iowa, in North Dakota. The oldest mosque being in Cedar Rapids, Iowa from 1934. Muslims have been part of this history. And we've created the ice cream cone in this country and the Apple phone. The Syrian immigrant, his son, as you guys remember the late Steve Jobs, his father was a Syrian immigrant, as well as the Syrian immigrant who created the waffle cone, the ice cream cone in this country. Muslims have been part of this who, who country. We don't know, but it, it happened somewhere in the St. Louis Fair. But the last point I'm trying the last point is because of the fact that Islamophobic Network wants to frame American Muslims as a threat, they have used fake statistics. They have used these pseudo, and they recognize that how fear can be easily be manipulated. Media, Hollywood, and much of the po- politics has played a big role in creating these fears that communities fear against each other. Haji, I'll come to you in a moment. Haji. Uh, well, uh, okay, my experience is a little bit different. In some places like St. Cloud and Central Minnesota, this conversation are important because. Most of the people that live there, like I said before, don't have a knowledge or idea who are Muslims. Who, who, who are these people? And then when something like St. Cloud happens where a young man walks into a mall and stabs people, people get suspicious. People start to get afraid, you know, and they, have, they ask questions uh, because the media is saying that's how, that's how all of them are. And, well, we're here in the media talking to the media and saying, no, that's not how we all are. The, the sheriff's office, uh, how we deal with this is so we protected. Our main goal is public safety. We don't focus only particular uh, groups or particular faith, but we deal with case by case. And it doesn't matter what religion you believe or what background you come from. If you committed crime, you deal with it. we will deal with it. Abdi, I'm going to ask you a difficult question, and you can say no comment if you like, because it's putting you... you, There's no no bad question. The bad question is the one you don't ask. Okay, okay, (laughs) go ahead. I'm going to ask it then, Uh, because your sheriff has made a point of trying to engage the Somali-American community, and I met him, and he seemed to be really genuinely trying to reach out and to understand the community and to work with the community. He went to the White House and was caught on TV the other day, where the president said to him, do you have a big problem with refugees pouring in? And he said, yes, we do, sir. Now, didn't that undo a lot of the trust that he's built up? Not really. His, his question, I think he answered the best way to answer. Also, some people take out of the content how we answer the question. He was the leader of those sheriffs sitting with the president. And, and it's, got, it's okay to have a, he had his voice and his freedom. It's a, it's a difficult situation for anyone, yeah. That's all they got. I mean, that moment, that's all it matters. What he said to the president is all in matters because that's what they had on tape. Anything else, it didn't matter. I but mean, they, he, didn't, they, didn't he, say, they didn't show when he said, 
almost 500 Somalis have a business, 300 Somalis graduating college. He, there are almost 25 Somalis are a member of the law enforcement. He has almost 5,000 his network who are Somali American, like folks sitting here, who are highly educated, who are good American. They didn't show the tape when he said the Somali uh, American who dying in Iraq and Syria defending, defending America. You didn't see that in the tape. Said he must have said a lot of great things, but the, the only caught up. <laughs> The, the, what matters is what he said to the president at that moment. Because okay, that I, is I, what defines... I, I'll go to the audience in a minute, but just with all your international experience, and many of you have moved all over the place, I'd I just be very interested to know, because there are three big Somali diaspora communities now. London, Minneapolis, Toronto. And I'd be very interested to know, because you've all been to, I guess, all of these places probably between you, what are the differences in the way the state interacts with those communities. I, I'll, I'll start, just... and i tell you why. Uh, in the United States, when you come here, you belong right away. It's a land of immigrants, where Europe is immigrant and native. And also, when you come here in the United States, you got a job right away, so you feel your home, and you feel dignity. Where? rest of Europe or other countries, people are still taking uh, leave subsidized house and welfare, and that's not good for a human being. I just want to say something, and I think a lot of people misunderstand this. The experience of Somali-Americans here is because of the struggle of African-Americans and the civil rights that have happened before even the Somalis came. And we have to recognize the fact that the African-Americans struggle and fight for equality here in America has played a huge role in making some of the Somali-Americans or other African groups that come here fit in almost, almost, with the same level as African-American struggle. American okay, so you're, you're, both saying, you're both saying Europe is behind, really. It's way behind. Yeah. Our, can I... Can I bring you back to this issue of the state you know, management of these issues and societal management of these issues. Toronto, London, Minneapolis. Actually, I'm Canadian. I'm Somali-Canadian myself. I got all my education. My whole family is in Ottawa, Canada. I go there twice a year, all Christmas and summer. I think each context is different. I think there are some opportunities that Somalis have grabbed and accessed in the U.S. And, you know, one of those, for example, is, you know, kind of, of course, uh, employment, education. In Canada, there are also a lot of opportunities. Every one of the Somalis that I went to university with works in the Canadian government. All my friends work for the Canadian government. Um, so there are success stories, but there are also a lot of challenges there. So in the, you know, kind of that comparison, I think the U.S., what to me makes it special now is the type of scrutiny and the type of overt xenophobia and Islamophobia that Somalis have been experiencing. More pressure here. More, no comparison. Right. Yeah. Okay, so let, let's get some comments and also questions. If you've got any questions for the panel, we've got just uh, five, five minutes or so to take those. Yes, sir. My name is, my name is Andrew Twinamasiko. I'm originally from Uganda. I came to the United States about eight years ago. And mine is more of a comment that um, has underscored this conversation. I think the lack of representation of what other attributes to a community, the lack of it leads to misconceptions and marginalization. Lack of visibility is really core to marginalization and then looking at people in a particular way and not seeing everything else that's good about it. I'm originally from Uganda and you have no clue how many times within a week people ask me, oh, you're from Uganda? How about that Idi Amin? I'm like... <laughs> Idi Amin was overthrown almost 40 years ago, before I was even born. But these representations in the news, 
in, in our entertainment. You see the movies that they make. And this is not necessarily peculiar to Somalia. It's peculiar to everybody who's ever been a minority who doesn't have the control. You see the entertainment, movies about Africa. It's about Hotel Rwanda, the Blood Diamonds. That's what we have. So I think it's fair that this to look at all these other good things, all these positive attributes that a community like the Somalis have contributed to our society in order to sensitize everybody else that whatever has been represented in the media or by our president is actually factually wrong. Thank you. Yes, at the back there. Yes, I have had the great privilege of working in this neighborhood at this college and being with the Somali community, a white American Minnesotan, and I couldn't say more about the beauty, the the positive influence on this neighborhood in the state of Minnesota. I, I, I can't say enough, and I'm, I'm sorry I'm so passionate right now, but this community has added immense, immense assets to this whole Minnesota. As far as religion, I've learned more about religion in the last, you know, 20 years about the devotion, about praying five times a day, the commitment people supporting their families and the world with very little, still supporting three and four families. I don't see anyone else in our community doing that. The commitment to each other, I think they've revived Minnesota, the, the Somali community in so many ways, as far as safety, as far as how to deal with people. When I, I, when I go through the streets as the community director, uh, engagement person, I see people stopping on the street to help someone, it's, it's always a Somali person stopping the car. So I just, I can't say enough, and I want to tell the world that the Somali community is the best thing that's happened to Minnesota in my life, and the commitment of the people to this college and to this community, uh, to music, to the arts. And so it's so sad to me when people don't understand that. And so anyway, I, I'm Got sorry, I just have to say that. Yep. My name is Anissa. I'm a senior at Augsburg College. And one thing um, I've kind of noticed tonight, we're talking a lot about Somalis, we're talking about the Muslim community and, you know, responsibility and terrorism. But I think one thing that needs to be acknowledged is white supremacy. Donald Trump was elected because of white supremacy. Historically in this country, every time marginalized communities make advances, we are punished. And so not only the American media is responsible, but the British media as well and for other medias and how they portray Muslims as, you know, inclined to terrorism and violence. And we also need to acknowledge the right wing movements that are happening right now in predominantly white countries, not only America, but the EDL in Britain, Marine Le Pen in France, Gert Wilders in, in the Netherlands. And so I feel like we need to acknowledge like the elephant in the room. You know, a lot of people come to this country and other European countries from places that were colonized by them. Our resources are taken, our homelands are destabilized, and then we come here and we are punished for seeking some sort of stability, you know, something that every single human being wants. And so I need to, we need to acknowledge, you know, responsibility on both sides. It's not just on the Somali community. There are a lot of factors as to why people are joining groups like Al-Shabaab or people are joining gangs it's not in a vacuum. People need to be responsible and acknowledge historical context. Thank you. There's a qu question in the front row, yeah. I want to follow up with how you said about the African-American community here and how they help us going through the social and, and civil rights. But don't forget also the British Caribbeans contribute to UK. So as the Canadian, if you look at the eastern part of Canada, there was also Americans who left here as well as Canadian Caribbeans. 
I want to ask this, uh, the Professor Awo, how much is this economics underneath all this hatred? And because we don't, as Somalis, maybe getting enough opportunities as employments and things like that, that creates the young men to look for other options. How much of this is about poverty and yes. ec economic opportunity? Correct. Um, I often, see, you know, you know, this question of what are some of the causes of young um, men being radicalized. Of course, it's never ever easy. If it were, we would not have this problem. You know, the FBI and and the government have, has been spending millions and billions of dollars trying to figure it out. But definitely, marginalization in terms of, you know, you know, in my own research, um, I looked at Somali community in the U.S., South Africa, and the United Arab Emirates, the Arabian Gulf, and Somalis in the U.S. come out as feeling most alienated in terms of the settlement. And many Somalis come in with almost nothing, coming from, you know, many families coming from the refugee camps, coming to the U.S., which has a specific racial, uh, historical kind of um, structure. Uh, and many of these families ended up in inner-city America, where people have limited socioeconomic opportunities, where children often become segregated in underperforming schools and where you know many of these communities are already highly connected to the uh, criminal system in terms of kind of you know uh, children not necessarily even finishing high school and and different types of struggles in terms of uh, drugs for example and also over policed so you know this, it's not that there is necessarily more crime in this area but there is of course more police presence and scrutiny so i think that's one factor but again i you know i wouldn't have the 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 the, the, the I guess, the information or the research to say that it's one factor, but no question about it. Thank you very much. I will just take one more from the audience because uh, we're running a bit out of time, but there's a lady there who wants to ask or say something. Hi, my name is Amina. Uh, I wanted to ask a question mostly about the Somali racial identity, which is black, and the Somali religious identity, which is mostly predominantly Sunni Muslim, and how that impacts the treatment of Somalis as a community, because you see other communities specifically talking about the CVE program, um, Countering Violent Extremism, which was uh, proposed in three different places, well, it was Boston, somewhere in California, and here in Minneapolis. And it was only accepted here. The other two communities were non-black Muslims and wealthier. So you can tell the difference in the treatment of Somalis based on race. But I just wanted you guys to speak more on CVE and just black Muslim identity. Thank you very much. So let's just get a final uh, set of comments from the panel. And Jaylani. Uh, that's a really good question. And I would say that actually is uh, I, the way we looked at it was the government playing Islamophobia frame American Muslims as the only threat from countering violence extremism, interacting with the Muslim community from that perspective. In Minnesota, the only, by the way, majority of the Muslim organizations rejected, 50 organizations namely rejected the program, majority of organizations rejected. The very few that initially accepted the program, the reason why they even accepted was because money was attached to that. And this community is a community that has been underfunded by both the foundations and the state and many of the uh, well-resourced uh, spaces that provide that. So they were in a position of scarcity, and they took that. Now many of them are against it because the truth came out as the this administration looked at CVE. They even changed it. It's countering vi uh, violent from Islamic radicalism, uh, whatever. So Islam has is, is, is been declared to a certain extent. Uh, I want to go back to the young lady. Uh, can, I, 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 can I just, first of all, just ask 
Abdi Mohammed, can you come back on that? I don't know how much there is involvement there is with the sheriff's department in the countering, countering violence, violent extremism program. But in general terms, when the state tries to make these initiatives, do you react like we've just heard with uh, suspicion or do you think they're legitimate? I believe uh, if I if I explain the way our office if we if I if I get money example we get 145,000 uh, six months ago public safety public safety in uh, Minnesota Department of Public Safety that 125,000 we partner I think it was 145,000 we partner with Voice of East African Women organization number of the organization in Somali community we use that to education to teach Somali mother and kid prevention of gangs and drags and watch their kid when somebody is recruiting them through internet. And we use internet safety, social media safety. So I think CVE, a lot of people misunderstood. Some people refuse it because they are not add to the money and some people take it to use to educate people. When so I, I see different ways as a law enforcement when through, edu- Roof through, edu- nine, through education. When Dylan Roof killed nine black people, we did not create a program in South Carolina for poor white kids to kick around a ball. We didn't do that in this country. When black people do any form of but crime, he's, he's in jail right now. Though. A poverty issue. He's in jail. As, the guy as who was discussed earlier, this issue of radicalization is a very complex issue. It does not cannot be simplified as a social service issue. The social service issue is a failure of the state and the foundations. What, and that what, is where what I, what I know, go. what I know, and I'm not and I'm not defending what I know is personally how we use the money CVE is education. And people are misunderstood. Okay, I'll do, thank you. Now we got your point. And finally, and also, has, and also, we hire people to train them how to reach out, how to reach out the community. Also, that many CVE Owen, seventy-five countries from Europe and Africa visit our office last four years. Program called IVLB, International Visitors Leadership Program, through State Department to educate them how to do community outreach. April 9th, I will invite all of you. We're getting 25 delegates all over Africa and Asia coming to us and learning from us. Also for us, we win at the sheriff's office, 21st century policing in the United States to come to Hennepin County Sheriff's Office because how we engage and create trust the community to learning from us. Haji, Haji you wanted to say something? Uh, yes, uh, I just want to say, first of all, you know, solutions can only be found in communities they can come up with solutions to issues, problems. Uh, not, not a government, not people from outside. We need, within ourselves, look at each other and say, what can we do better? How can we talk to each other? How can we come solutions for our communities? I'll go ahead and say, for people like Donald Trump, and this is what I say, Donald Trump is not my neighbor. He doesn't live in St. Cloud. I have neighbors that are human in St. Cloud. They're people that I can talk to. There are people that I share bus with. There are people that I share Walmart with. There are people I share Target. There are people that I share uh, the streets, uh, the parks. These are everyday people that have a faith. They have a value. They um, uh, uh, have a way of going about things that have been always uh, like have done so. And those are the people that I need to know. Those are the people that I need to get to know. I want them to know me and I want to know them because I want them to understand where I come from, why I'm there. And also I want to understand how they come there and how, because we all share the similar similar uh, histories. If we go back, some come from Africa, some from Europe, but we have, we're here for the same reasons. Uh, the other thing I, w- I want to talk about is that is very important. No, honestly, that, I, we're out of time. You've made a really good point. And, and I, we... we an hour is never enough. So, so, so what I'm going to do is say, 
Haji Yusuf, thank you very much. And thank you to our Abdi, to Jailani Hussein and Abdi Mohammed for your comments and to the audience here for your uh, interesting and provocative remarks and comments and questions. So thank you all very much indeed. If you uh, want to catch the programme again, then the best thing to do is get the podcast. That's the BBC NewsHour Extra podcast. One hour of discussion on a single topic like this every week. And if you want to comment on the programme, newshour.extra at bbc.co.uk or tweet at bbcnhextra. But from our excellent panel, very engaged audience this week, thank you very much indeed. And from Owen Bennett-Jones here in Minneapolis, goodbye.